0: This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, Ukrainian expert Bohdan Kravchenko and international relations expert Michael Cox join us with the fuller picture of the catastrophic Russian war on Ukraine and the global consequences it has sparked. Bohdan Kravchenko brings us the big picture inside Ukraine with reports on individual stories of heroism and solidarity from ordinary Ukrainians, and he debunks myths and propaganda spewing forth from many quarters. We also talk about the widespread anti-war actions from within Russia and the level of support for Ukraine increasingly isolating Putin. Nick Cox insists that Putin's war is not about Ukraine joining NATO, which isn't on the cards, but about regime change in Ukraine to make Ukraine more like Russia, which will consolidate Putin's kleptocratic control at home. It isn't going well. Putin is contending with opposition as Russians take to the streets facing arrest. Ukrainians are fighting back. And Putin has become an international pariah. His push for a new security infrastructure in Europe has already forced the United States to shift its geopolitical focus back to Europe. And Mick Cox insists China is the true winner in this crisis, as Russia is now more economically and strategically subordinated to the vastly more powerful regime in Beijing. We get both Bogdan Kravchenko and Mick Cox's analysis of the dangerous moment we are in when our program returns, in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. And today we're going to cover the Russian war on Ukraine. And we're very fortunate to have both Kravchenko back with us, this time to assess the situation On the beginning of day three of Russia's war against Ukraine, the actuality of the war is so shocking that few believed it would really take place, despite the intelligence and troop deployment underway. I know I didn't, and I was interviewed on a station just two days ago, and that was the first question. I said, no, I don't think it'll come to war. But here we are, day three, and Russia has bombarded Ukrainian cities by air, land, and sea captured Chernobyl, and there's worry that the tanks have disturbed the soil there, sending radioactive dust into the air. And there's now the beginning of the assault on Kiev. Russian soldiers have been met by fierce resistance and fighting. And there's reports, according to the Ukrainian ambassador to the UN, that one Russian platoon surrendered, saying they didn't want to kill Ukrainians and tens of thousands have fled in a desperate rush to get out of the country. There's a lot of other aspects of it that we're going to get to. One that that was heartening for me was to see the large demonstrations across Russia, especially in St. Petersburg and Moscow, but in other cities as well. And they have faced repression and there's something like 1800 arrests already and uh, new polls as well as polls that were uh, released earlier have shown Little to no support in Russia for this war. And so that makes it a very risky gamble for Putin. And we're going to try to figure out, uh, I'll ask then what he thinks about that. Before I let you speak, on one last thing is I've been watching, as probably everyone else, Putin's speeches in the last several days. And they're increasingly bizarre And seemingly deranged. He's aggressive. You know, he had come across in previous years as the savvy, cool, strategic thinking, a man in charge. And now you have this aggressive, angry one that is uh, seemingly inventing an alternate reality and certainly history. Uh, but we know his goals, and I'm going to ask you what you think they are. I don't need to say more about that. Let me just properly introduce Bogdan. He's the Dean of the Graduate School of Development and the former Director General of the University of Central Asia, that has campuses across Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, and programs elsewhere. We are talking to Bogdan in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan. He was, up until 1991, the professor and then director of the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies in Edmonton, Alberta, and in 1991 after the Soviet Union dissolved, Bogdan went to Ukraine. And he was director of policy studies at the Council of Advisors to the Parliament there and later founder and director of what became the Academy of Public Administration in the office of the president of the Ukraine and then was appointed vice rector for academic development and the director of the Center for the Study of Administration. He also has several books, importantly, uh, Social Change and National Consciousness in 20th Century Ukraine and others that we won't mention right here. Bokhtam, welcome back to Jacobin Radio.
1: Well, thank you for having me on.
0: Well, let's just start with your assessment of what has happened in these last three days, giving a kind of overall glimpse of the situation. So
1: the Russians call this not war, they call this uh, special military operations. I think we were all very surprised to see that these operations began on all fronts, in the south of Ukraine, in the east of Ukraine, but especially the very heavy concentration in the north of Ukraine from Belarusia and from Russia itself, with the objective of capturing Kyiv and changing the political leadership. And everybody, all of the military analysts, or many... When they said if Russia attacks, they were very pessimistic about the ability of the Ukrainian army to withstand the assault. And I thought this was going to be a matter of days before Russia occupies Ukraine. Well, that hasn't happened. And that hasn't happened for very many reasons. The most important of which is that what those military analysts did not do And what Putin has significantly miscalculated is the fact that Ukrainian society is extremely united. There is immense national solidarity, and we have an exceptional leader of the nation, a Jewish guy called Zelensky. And he has emerged as Ukraine's church. He stays in Kiev. He was offered by others to go leave. He's there. He's there this morning. He is recognized by all political factions. There is unanimous support for his leadership. And this person that we may have been skeptical in the past has risen to the occasion and has proven to be remarkable, inspirational leader. And uh, we're very lucky to have Zelensky. At the helm.
0: I think it's just so, worth saying as well that he was a comedian on television, a television huge, comedian that, you know, played a president and people thought maybe he should be president and then he is president well, and was not taken seriously.
1: Well, he was taken seriously by the population because he got 70 percent of the vote, but no one really thought or we had hope, but no one really thought that he would be this inspirational national leader that is very calm, but extremely determined. And so this is the third day of the war. By and large, the Russian advance has been rebuffed. It has been rebuffed in the east. They've entered several kilometers. Just now, we have understood that there's been a major rebuff and pushback and high casualties in the south, where the Ukrainians have recaptured troops. And the battle is now going around Kiev. The casualties on the Russian side are very high. The last figures that I heard yesterday was 3,100, and it's probably growing. One of the things that Zelensky did, which is unbelievably smart, is to tell the truth to the people the good news and bad news, and to organize television in such a way that all of the individual television stations have a standard program that everybody airs, so there is a commonality of opinion. And people, because there's so much fake news, it's extremely important that the Ukrainians tell the truth If there is a defeat, you say there is a defeat, that people will trust you. And so there is an enormous trust now in what the government says, because it doesn't lie to you. And his relationship with the media and with journalists is absolutely remarkable. There was a cute incident that occurred when the head of the military intelligence gave his briefing and he began to tell the journalists, And I'll give you my personal mobile number, 099. And they said, quiet. (laughs) (laughs) The whole country is going to call you. (laughs) He said, it's true. Thanks. (laughs) I got carried away. So they have colossal access to information and everyone is honing in. Ukraine's weakness is it didn't have, over the years, it didn't build up very good surface-to-air missile support. And so it's only now that it's, well, I mean, mind you, about 12 jets, those super jets have been shot down and many, many helicopters. So the absence control over your air has been a very big problem. And what Ukraine needs is a lot of lethal weapons. But, you know, the reason why the Russians have not succeeded is really because of the organization of Ukrainian society. And these are the stories that come up on television, and these are the stories that are going to be memorialized. This is the boys, the 18-year-old boys, who joined the territorial army. These are little kids of 18 years old. This is the first time that they got arms. And the first Russian column that went to Kharkiv, They destroyed the tanks of the first Russian column, 18-year-olds. And, of course, (laughs) everyone began here. And this surprises everyone. They are the guys on the island in the Black Sea that were told by the Russian destroyer that we are going to bomb you if you don't surrender. And they told them to F off. And they stood there, and 13 of them died and were declared, they got the highest military awards. It's this kind of determined sacrifice. It's the guy who walked in front of Russian tanks coming in, like in Tiananmen Square, to tell them to go home. The other remarkable thing is that Putin thought that if I attack the country, if I bomb the cities, there's going to be panic. And there hasn't been any panic. It has been a very orderly withdrawal of the population. And in part, it's because the government has been very honest with them, but also because Ukrainian society is very different. Remember that when the war started in 2014, 60% of Ukrainian population joined voluntary organizations. Mm. So there is a very Deep, deep, deep experience of helping your neighbor, of civil society, of having patience and not panicking. And the panic that they wanted to sow did not materialize. Now, Ukraine has lasted three days. We're into the fourth day. I think that Putin's troops have received a shock that they thought that this is going to be a kind of shoe and, you know, a walk in the park. And it's not a walk in the park. People are learning how to do Molotov cocktails. And I don't think it will come to -to street-to-street battles, but if they do, they will, because there is a huge territorial army that has been armed. Basically, just about every male or every second male has volunteered to join the territorial army. Ukraine is going to be a very different country afterwards. And everybody says that this is the the breakthrough experience. And of course, there's international opprobrium for what Putin did. You know, when the Premier League allows for the first time political slogans, you know, and as they say, football is not about the meaning of life, it's more important then that actually shows you how how deep revulsion there is among decent people throughout the world.
0: I want to and just that... ask one thing, both then, just to say, just to bolster what you're saying, the BBC tonight uh, interviewed boys, young boys, who were living in other countries in Eastern Europe and, and even in Britain, and they were on their way back to Ukraine, and they said, what are you doing? And they said, we have to stand with our country, which is pretty remarkable, given... What most people would have said is the relationship of forces, you know, between Russia as a military power that's, you know, second to only the U.S. and young Ukraine in this sense. Well,
1: one of the things that when military analysts, uh, Ukrainian military analysts, talked about the likelihood of success in resisting, they said the thing that we count on the most is that our troops are highly, highly motivated and they are battle-hardened because they've been fighting, and that they're on their soil, and they're going to stand. And that makes the very big difference, because when you interview the prisoners of war that have been captured, I mean, they're completely lost, and they can't explain what they're doing in Ukraine. I mean, they have no motivation to be there. They said, why are you here? He said, well, because they told us. Do you know why you're here in Ukraine? He said, no, we don't understand why we're here, but they told us to come, and here we are. So, and What
0: about, were you heartened by or surprised by the demonstrations in St. Petersburg and Moscow and the kind of outpouring of a resistance and anti-war sentiment as well as solidarity expressed?
1: You know, that was very significant for Ukrainians. That has been broadcast widely in Ukraine the number of Russians that appear on Ukrainian television. That, I think, is extremely important and every Ukrainian is grateful because it's one thing to go demonstrate in London. When you go out and demonstrate in Russia, you are going to get arrested and they have been arrested. You will get kicked out of university and you will lose their job. So those people that went out, 5,000 of them on Pushkin Square, they're bloody heroes. It took a lot of guts. And there were demonstrations in 40 cities of Russia. There was one guy who stood on the road with a sign, Donbass is Ukrainian. And they, are, they arrested him for an illegal demonstration. The guy was just standing on the road on his own.
0: Wow. So Kirill then, Medvedev, too. There's a picture of him. I saw it. He's standing in front of, a, I guess, a metro station, and he has a sign, no, to the war. That's in Russian, though. And he was arrested. He was by himself.
1: Yes, yes. I think at one point you can stand with a blank piece of paper and they're going to arrest you because they know you're <laughs> in things. I think one of the results of this war is that it has woken up Russian society to the horror of what Putin is. I just listened this morning to uh, Russian commentary. The paradoxical situation is while 70% of the population supports Putin, 70% of the population is against the war. And I think that this war is going to be the beginning of unraveling of Putin because he's genuinely mad. His total rants on television that, you know, why are we invading Ukraine? Well, because it's run by Nazis. And
0: that it was Lenin's fault. (laughs) And
1: that it was Lenin's (laughs) fault. That Ukraine is like a big misunderstanding. The fact that it's been around for a thousand years doesn't count. That really is they don't exist as a people and they have no rights to have a democratic government. He's just kind of lost it.
0: I think everybody just, you know, add to that, you know, because I've been watching him over the years in his speeches. And as I said in the introduction, it is shocking to see how deranged he seems. And, you know, even in these meetings that he had before where he's in these gigantic rooms with 40 feet of space between Putin almost on a throne and the others. And I take it that that's because he's also a germaphobe and frightened of COVID. But, you know, this is not rational. Do you think it's How do you explain that? And how how do we explain the gamble he's taking?
1: Look, uh, the evolution of Putin and Putinism and the Putin dictatorship to its state is really has taken years and it's gotten worse and worse and worse. And it's almost like in its final state before it actually stops or morphs into I don't know what. What he did, The assault of Putin on his own society is criminal. So people now are arrested, not just because they go out and demonstrate, they are arresting people who can potentially demonstrate. So if I put a like on something on social media, people have been arrested for that. So it is the kind of authoritarianism that has gone mad. If you saw the people that he had around him, the leadership in the Security Council, and the way he treated them, the head of intelligence was trembling. Russian society deserves much better than that. And I think the war in Ukraine has been a very big wake up to Russian society. And we admire the people there. We admire very much that there is a petition that 500,000 people have signed. Good for
0: them. There's also, I mean, just as you were speaking, saying that he's also arresting people who are suspected, who have not yet expressed opposition, but are potential oppositionists. This smacks of Stalin. And it's it's just, <laughs> it's well, chilling you know, to hear this. What, what
1: kind of playbook do you think he has? When we heard that they have lists, they prepared lists of people that are to be arrested in Ukraine, and they had identified where the concentration camps are going to be.
0: So this, do you think let me just go forward because we can switch back to Ukraine from Russia bad as it is there? But you said and it's now open that his game plan is regime change. I worry, and I'm sure you do too, that he'll try to assassinate Zelensky. Well, and then but try. the other side would be, you know, then what? Is it is he going to have massive show trials?
1: Look, there is no one, Ukrainian society, even people who don't like Zelensky, there is such an expression of national solidarity that I can't think of anyone who would volunteer to be the puppet. (laughs) Putin has misread Ukraine so badly, it's staggering he called on the ukrainian troops to seize power and to overthrow zelensky uh, i don't think i mean he just simply doesn't understand ukraine because he can't understand how a democratic society works he's lost it
0: so unfortunately, okay so
1: yeah. he's unleashed a war in ukraine and unfortunately there're going to be thousands and thousands of casualties because This is not going to end.
0: I'm just going to ask, we're very early on in this war. And I think Putin probably assumed that he could do a shock and on, it would be over. He would topple the government. He would find a a docile population. And this has got to be a surprise. But now what? I mean, you just said that you're assuming that there's going to be a lot of casualties. But I mean, even if he manages to take Kiev and to topple the government, he will have swallowed a, a porcupine.
1: Yeah, but I don't think he can take over Ukraine because there is simply far too much resistance and they've exhausted, they have committed as many troops as they can commit. And the troops, they're being rebuffed. They're winning somewhere. They should have been much deeper into Ukrainian territory than they are. They've massed themselves and they're in Kiev but throughout most of Ukraine, they've made it only five to 10 kilometers inside the country and this is a very big country with very many angry people, and this is not enough people to have an army of occupation. And the other thing to be successful, you need to have your quislings, and there aren't any in Ukraine.
0: That's really very heartening as well, I'm Bogdan Kravchenko. And then, of course, there's no international support for this.
1: The economic consequences are being felt now. For God's sake, the Russian stock exchange has dropped about 30 or 40%. They can only export gas now and oil to China. And China says, okay, we'll take it, but we'll take it at a discount, 30%. The ruble has fallen. By the way, even in Kyrgyzstan, it's had an impact where the national currency, the som, has been devalued by 10%. And people are very upset that we are getting followed over here from something that this place is very far from.
0: So what are you thinking? I mean, you're, you're in Kyrgyzstan and you're Ukrainian and you're talking to people every day. And it sounds like, you know, from the picture you've painted so far that this is not going to be a cakewalk. He won't be successful. We don't know what's going to happen. But how do you see it? How can Putin himself survive this? I
1: don't know how Putin can survive this because there has to be a split within the Russian elite. The fact that popular opinion is turning against him is one thing, but these things are have to be settled by splits in elites that somebody that says enough is enough and we can't have a madman. You know, you mentioned Chernobyl. This is very painful for Ukrainians. This is 1986 when that exploded and the temperature is going up. And Ukrainians are not going to attack Chernobyl because that can lead to God knows what. And, planetary you know, consequences. Planetary stuff. So I think that now Putin and Lavrov are saying, okay, let's negotiate. And that idiot in Belarusia says, why don't you come to Minsk to negotiate? <laughs> and of course, Ukrainians are, going to say, Ukrainians are going to say, and Zelensky said, yes, I'm ready to talk. But, you know, the precondition is you get your troops out of the country and then we'll talk. And then what we want to talk about. Well, OK, Putin says you have to promise never to join NATO and you have to demilitarize. What does this mean? The Ukrainian army has to what disband itself and become like Switzerland or something like that. Or I know Costa Rica doesn't have an army, usually a police. So this is not serious. But I think that. The propensity to want to negotiate now is going to be much harder because it's clear that they're not going to be able to have a military victory short of some sort of nuclear bomb on Ukraine. And
0: And it's uh, even, you know, President Xi Jinping in China today tweeted that he has had a phone call to Putin and said to negotiate, which is, you know, that's very significant if it's the case.
1: That is the case, by the way. One of the things that people missed is that the Chinese foreign ministry said, we respect territorial integrity, and in particular, Ukraine. And they said, please don't speculate on our stance on this. We are opposed to it.
0: So it's really quite extraordinary. And, Booked, and I know you don't have oodles of time, but I did want to get from you some of the stories you're hearing when you're talking to family and friends in ukraine about what they're experiencing some of these personal stories that you mentioned
1: well i have a daughter and she was remarked they're all remarkably calm you know my canadian daughter her sister is infinitely more kind of anxious about this stuff but in ukraine you're very calm and when it looked that the troops are going to be coming very close to kiev they stayed and they evacuated yesterday. This, tonight is the first night that they're in a place in Western Ukraine, calmly organized themselves and left. That's the case with most. I have a lot of other friends who say we're going to stay put. And in fact, most of the people in Kiev is staying put. One of my friends said, listen, there's something unusual because he lives in a very large block of apartments. He says there are more lights on now than there was before. I mean, some people have come back. So there is a mass evacuation, and I think it's very correct. The Ukrainians have asked the Russians, and the Russians refused, to have a humanitarian evacuation of people from the occupied territories, women, children, invalids, and old people, to do a corridor to get them out. And they refused to do that, which I think is just simply shameful.
0: You know, I know that when we spoke several weeks ago, neither one of us thought that it would come to this. I mean, this is just unbelievable that we're now seeing the scale, this kind of a war in Ukraine and in Europe. And it has literally changed the world. This has now shifted the focus from the United States back to Europe. It has made, inevitably will make uh, Russia more dependent on China. And I think the survival of Putin himself is really a question here, too. Now, you mentioned Lavrov. He's always been seen as the most capable diplomat, very suave, very smooth, very, you know. And now he, too, is looking just about as angry as Putin. So there's something afoot that is is pretty extraordinary.
1: Well, look, they have in Ukraine, we said we had the, the mania of greatness, They thought that this is the way they run Russian society. They're used to kicking Lukashenko around. And they thought that Ukraine has been a thorn in the side. We had Yanukovych. You're supposed to be a satrapy. You are setting a very bad example for the rest of the region because you're democratic. You have an orientation towards Europe and European institutions, which is not surprising because Ukraine has been always part of Europe. Please note the demonstrations that took place in Georgia, where they have a bit of a pro-Russian guy, but there were about 200,000 people went out in Tbilisi, and it's galvanizing an opposition. It's galvanizing an opposition to puppets of Putin, and this is one of the big things that is happening. So people who thought, well, maybe we should get along with Putin, maybe we can strike a deal. The idiots like Trump, you know, we can always make a deal. You don't make a deal with a madman and a devil. And I think that this is one of the big takeaways, that the world is going to be very different, and the international order will hopefully be very different. And Europe now has very few illusions left.
0: Finally, I wanted to ask you about the myths and the propaganda that we've gotten from Russia all of this time and that has been echoed in some so-called leftist quarters, even in Europe and in the United States, that what Putin is doing is getting rid of the Nazi regime or he's going to denazify Ukraine. And it seems that, you know, that is completely in conflict with what people are seeing on their television screens. But I wonder...
1: Susan, for the left to buy that, they have lost their moral compass. It's unbelievable. They have parked their moral compass somewhere else. To glorify authoritarianism because somehow they relate to this kind of stupid macho strong arm. Yeah. (laughs) To actually accuse Ukraine of having a Nazi regime, it is so idiotic. It's like what you have in the the United States, these QAnons or whatever, right? The earth is flat. And by the way, they eat babies in California. It's of that order. 41 million people in the U.S. subscribe to these beliefs. So then there's a deeper diagnosis that has to be made about the well-being. But the left that's supposed to be intelligent and more perspicacious, I mean, that's simply disgusting that they do that. And, you know, when when Ukrainians hear this, they just can't understand what people are talking about. And we had a situation where Grossman, the prime minister, was Jewish, Zelensky is Jewish, and said, what is this Nazi business? We can't understand. Oh, you mean the fact that we have elections? This is Nazis, right? The fact that we have a free press, that's Nazi. The fact that nobody gets arrested over here because civil society is active, that's Nazis. It's like... The fact that anybody on the left would do that, I really think the left has lost its marbles.
0: Well, and it's also quite weak. Let me just finally ask you, Bokhtan, it's only early into this war, but you've given us an idea of the strength of the resistance and of the coming together around Zelensky and the way that he has risen to the occasion. So how do you see it ending?
1: I think it'll end in, I mean, the point is, There has to be negotiations now because that's the only face saving way that Putin can get out of it. Yeah. And so, some, you know, the negotiations are inevitable. Some diplomatic effort is inevitable. Ukraine has actually asked Israel to lead the. uh,
0: I know. Go figure. It's really quite extraordinary. Go go figure. (laughs) Go figure that one. Bogdan Kravchenko, thank you so much for joining us. I knew you would shed light on what's really going on in Ukraine. Bogdan is not in Ukraine today. He's in Bishkek in Kyrgyzstan, where he is the dean of the Graduate School of Development at the University of Central Asia. But he has spent many, many years in Ukraine. And we want to thank you for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thank you, Susie. Thanks. Take care. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. And Mick Cox is back with us to help us understand the bigger picture or the broader picture of the catastrophic Russian war on Ukraine and the global consequences it has sparked. Professor Cox insists that Putin's war is not about Ukraine joining NATO, which isn't on the cards, but about regime change in Ukraine to make Ukraine more like Russia, which will consolidate his own kleptocratic control at home. It isn't going well for Putin. He's contending with widespread opposition as Russians take to the streets facing arrest Ukrainians are fighting back, and he's become an international pariah. Putin's push for a new security infrastructure in Europe has already forced the United States to shift its geopolitical focus back to Europe. And Mick Cox insists that China is the true winner in this crisis, as Russia is more economically and strategically subordinated to the vastly more powerful regime in Beijing, even while China is carefully weighing its words and actions to make it look as if China is only seeking peace. We'll get Mick to explain. And Mick Cox, or Michael Cox, is Emeritus Professor of International Relations at the LSE, London School of Economics, where he helped establish the Cold War Studies Center. He previously taught at Queen's University, Belfast, and before that, at the Department of International Politics in Aberystwyth, that's Wales. And he's authored many books on international politics in the Cold War, U.S. foreign policy, and so much more. But the latest book coming out in the United States in April is called Agonies of Empire, U.S. Power from Clinton to Biden. He's also got another book, The Post-Cold War World, and he's on the editorial board of Critique. And I welcome you back, Nick Cox.
2: Susie, great to be back. Great to have this conversation about what is by any definition one of the most serious situations in the world we've seen for a very long time.
0: I wanted to start with maybe this is even late, but just the obvious, because Mm. even the day before, I went on an interview and I when asked if I thought the war would happen. I said, no. Every single person I spoke to who not just on the street, but people who are specialists all said no. The only people it seemed that said that Putin was going to do this were security analysts, the Biden administration and that sort of thing. So Mm. why do you think (laughs) most of us got it wrong?
2: Well, let me make a confession here online, Susie. I wrote a piece only two days before arguing that it might happen, and that it was not ruled out. I didn't disbelieve the intelligence for once, so I didn't rule out the invasion. Indeed, I thought it was at least a 20% possibility. So I hedged my bets. But on the balance of analysis, like most other people, and not just in the West or in Britain or America, but also in China and Russia too, by the way, a lot of the experts and the business class in Russia as well didn't think he would do it. They just thought the risks, the costs, the consequences would be so appallingly high that he just wouldn't do it. Now, the question is why? Well, it could well be that we've just got bad social science. It could well be that we've really underestimated Putin. Uh, Maybe we underestimated the way decisions are made within the Kremlin. You know, it was from everything we know, we don't know as much as we think we'd like to know. The decision-making process really does focus on Putin and a small group around him. And I suppose also one would have to say, I don't think we'd really, some may have done, and some did get it right, let's be perfectly honest, perhaps they understood the nature of the system. Because a system like Putin's system, which is hugely focused on the one man now, you know, which is essentially a very cabal-like group of people around him, really his, his friends and buddies who will always agree with him, you know, and very rich oligarchs as well, by the way. One, mm. one didn't, you know, it's not what we call it in international relations rational decision making with lots of opinions going around the table. I suppose the other thing we could say is like, do we see this as a sign of Russian strength or a sign of Russian decline? Mm. You know, a lot of people would say, well, this demonstrates, you know, it's a very, very strong Russia. Putin is a strategic genius. I think you could also argue and take the other countervailing point that this is a sign. The Russian regime may be in trouble, and this may actually add to its troubles. But you're right. The experts got it wrong and not for the first time.
0: So let's talk about that, because you just said several things, including his style of rule. And we've seen a lot of that, and I'm going to go into it a little bit more. But as you Mm. said, you know, you raised the question of whether or not this is a sign of strength or weakness, essentially. Mm. And I think you could say that almost the same thing about the U.S.'s response, but we'll go into that later. Mm. But let's talk about why you think he decided to go forward on this, because as all of us thought, as he was amassing troop, that this was just going to be bluster and that at the last moment something would happen that would not trigger the unthinkable, which is a war of this scale right in Europe. Yeah,
2: It is, as some have argued, it is partly a question of Putin believes he was lied to by the West, by the United States on NATO enlargement. And that is certainly some part of the background to this, so I'm not going to deny that completely. But I, I don't think that's the essence of the question. It doesn't necessarily lead us to a complete answer. But Putin has actually, I think, provided us with some of the answers himself. Firstly, the number of his speeches, many of which struck me as being very strange, I have to say. He kind of made a statement that Ukraine is not really a country. Mm-hmm. You know, Ukraine will only realise its sovereignty when it's actually under Russian control. So there's a kind of an historical reading there that Ukraine really is not in itself a nation in of itself, with a right of self-determination. So there's that part of it. I think some have argued too, and again, I don't want to get into you know, cheap psychology. You know, there's a kind of serious hatred he seems to have too now. Not just strategic dislike, but a kind of visceral hatred, really, of much of what the West now stands for as well. Now, we, we might say, what is the West about words well, about capitalism? It's the market, but it's also about, you know. It's also about bookshops. It's also about free demonstrations. It's also about (laughs) elections. And so there's that part of it too. And also some of the things he said also fit into a wider geostrategic framework, which I think is more rational than some of the things he seemed to say about Ukraine or, or Russian history, which is a bit strange. Or even
0: blaming it on Lenin and the communists as he yeah, did. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And
2: then a bunch of Nazis down in Kiev, you know, running the yeah, place. is right. Just to the president himself Jewish, but that's an interesting way of thinking about it. It could also be that he, he has for many years, and indeed this is what brings him close to China, I think, There are differences between them, but this is what brings them together. There's a kind of way of thinking about the world, which is, A, we don't want America running it. B, we prefer that world not to be politically liberal. And we'd want that world to be one within which we together, and here China and Russia together do, I think, work closely together. We together really want to challenge what is the existing order that emerged after the end of the Cold War. And I think he's also sending a message out. And again, we can be rather speculative here, because without real evidence at the moment, you know, we've got to be a bit careful about what we said. I think somebody said to me, and it made some sense, the Soviet Union lost the Cold War. The Soviet Union disintegrated. And therefore, there's an absolute necessity for restoring Russian power in some way or another. And we've seen, you know, his support in Belarus, We've seen the sort of intervention he made supporting the situation in Kazakhstan. So there's a kind of, I've got to recreate, not a Soviet Union, I don't think he's going to think about that, but at least an area, a zone of influence, a sphere of influence, his own Monroe Doctrine, if you like, mm. which will incorporate not only Belarus and Kazakhstan and some of the other republics, but in the end has to incorporate Ukraine, because Ukraine is so important because, after all, it is so big. And secondly, Ukraine was beginning to orient increasingly in 2014 towards the West.
0: Well, one of the things, you know, as you say this, Mick Cox, I'm thinking about the way that Putin, first of all, we should say that these speeches show him not like we've seen him in you know years past, rational, mm. savvy, cool, strategic, but really like he's lost it and angry and aggressive. There's that, but we're not psychoanalyzing him. (laughs) But, you know, this notion that you earlier said on the last show about wanting to restructure the security infrastructure Mm. of Europe and the world, in other words, post-NATO. On the other hand, now, to go back to this notion of restoring Russian greatness, let's say, Mm. however it's defined, maybe not recreating the exact Russian empire, but the Russian sphere of influence, I think your Monroe Doctrine, Is apt, but it also recalls, you know, the weird politics of Vladimir Zhirinovsky in the Yeltsin period, where he said, "From Finland to India, this is what Mm. we need to be." And Mm. (laughs) I don't know. Let let me hear your thoughts on that.
2: Well, I'm always told that in Britain we kind of suffer from what you might call post-imperial blues. Mm. You know, we got a post-imperial syndrome. But it may well be true. I'm a little more sceptical about that. To be perfectly honest, but that's another question.
0: Well, I think there is a
2: post-imperial syndrome amongst certain sections of the Russian elite. They've seen what was, after all, a superpower in the terms we used in the Cold War go under. They saw the Russian economy collapse in the 1990s. They saw NATO enlarge. You know, they saw what they thought was a series of Western-sponsored democratic revolutions in places like Georgia and in Ukraine. They've seen instability in Belarus, which they also think is Western-inspired. They've seen instability in Kazakhstan. So you add all that together, and if you're sitting there like Putin, you know, you're going to think there's something going wrong here, and I've got to restore a degree of power and respect for Russian power. Putin, I think, in his own mind, and again, I don't want to be overly psychological, I'm not a psychologist, and I haven't had conversations with Vladimir Putin recently, if at all. You know, I think there is a sense he thinks that Russia should be a world power. And he's got aspirations that Russia is a world power, just like China is becoming a world power. And maybe the, what lies behind much of this, therefore, is an attempt, which I think will in the end fail. I don't think it can succeed because the Russian economy simply can't bear that. It's too small. It's too inefficient. It's too dependent only on energy. What has it got? It's got weapons. It's got, like Mao Tung would say, power grows out of the barrel of a gun as we're seeing in the Russian intervention into Ukraine. That doesn't make it a world power, but I think, and again, I don't want to get overly psychological about this, and I apologise to all your listeners out there if it sounds like I'm psychologized. but, you know, he has said, I think Russia is a world power. It is a great power. It has to be respected. For the last 25 or 30 years, we've not been respected. Now you're going to show me some respect. And I think that's part of what is also happening. With this intervention, again, that is not a social science or an IR explanation, but it is, I think, part of what's really going on. Yeah.
0: Well, let's move then, uh, Mick Cox, to whether or not you think he's miscalculated. It's a difficult question, but one thing that I think has surprised many is the level of opposition within Russia itself. And even, you know, there's one platoon, according to the Ukrainian ambassador to the United Nations that Mm. surrendered to the Ukrainians and said, we don't want to kill you. And that you're seeing demonstrations in 40 cities across Russia and 1,800 or more arrests and, you know, consequences that it's much more difficult to go on a demonstration in Russia, an anti-war demonstration, as you've said, and others and Mm. prominent artists and uh, theater directors and others have all come out in solidarity. So it seems like he has animated an opposition that perhaps was there underground, but now is vocal. And then there's what's happening in Ukraine itself.
2: Yeah, and also I should add to that, Susie, also what's happening in a number of countries around the world. I mean, it's not just governments in the West. You know, you're seeing some popular demonstrations on the streets as as well. I mean, if Putin's purpose in doing this was to create a high degree of soft power, (laughs) then he's done completely the opposite. If his purpose was to weaken NATO, divide NATO amongst its various members, he's done the opposite.
0: That was going to be one of my questions, in too.
2: Way, it's, I'm, sorry, I'm, in, in a way, so in that sense, you could say he's already miscalculated. Mm. If the miscalculation was to divide NATO, he seems to achieve the opposite. <laughs> if his purpose was to build up respect for Russia, then judging by public opinion in most countries in the world, not in all countries, let's be honest, but in most countries in the world where there's at least some degree of free public opinion, in the, all those countries, I mean, you know, Russia now looks like a pariah state. I'm not quite sure <laughs> that exactly is what Putin would have wanted. And, and if that was the ambition to create a great power, and if you want to be a great power, you want to attract people to your cause, not turn yourself into a pariah. So in that sense, there's a miscalculation. On the military side, which is, I'm not really qualified to talk about, I simply have to listen to people on the ground and listen. And again, you've got to be very careful how you filter the information. There's so much disinformation out there as opposed to good information. But the general consensus seems to be that the resistance has been much more effective than it was calculated to be, that the speedy two-week defeat might not happen. Moreover, and I'm, I've been quite surprised about this Western powers, not just NATO, but you know others as well, have really mobilized against Russia, and we are going to start seeing some maybe more effective economic sanctions. There's talk now in Europe, certainly even in Germany, of pushing Russia out of the SWIFT system, which is the universal payment system. I don't know what impact that's going to have, but it's not going to be great. And by the way, a lot of Western countries are now piling in, rightly or wrongly, but I'm just telling you what's happening, they're clearly piling in a lot of weaponry as well now.
0: And you also have just one thing today, YouTube, Google has instructed YouTube and other sites not to accept RT feeds. That's That, of course, is a form of censorship. But on the other hand, they don't want that opposite point yeah, of view. So I, it's more and more I, yeah, isolated even in terms of media.
2: You no, know, it, it's it's right. Absolutely. Right across the board. Too, it, putting aside, you know, what's going on on the ground in Ukraine militarily and the terrible things that are happening, there, they are terrible, without a doubt. You know, one sympathy has to be not entirely, but mainly for for the ordinary people of, of Ukraine, ordinary working Absolutely. class people. And, you know, that's where I also feel great sympathy with the Russians ordinary Russian soldiers as well. You know, I mean, they've been thrown into this war by Putin, and whether they really know where they are or what they're doing, I honestly don't know. You do start hearing things that these poor guys, you know, and they they are being killed in fairly large numbers. So yeah, let's, let's have a humanistic approach to this without, without being you know, naive. Absolutely.
0: Or, you know
2: what I mean? But it is just extraordinary. I'll be honest, Susie, like you, and I think like most people in the world today, I think we feel like we've turned an historic corner. And I think also, if I want to say this now, and I say it, and many people have said this, and it's a glib thing to say, but I think we're in a much more dangerous position than we ever were during the Cold War. I mean, we had mutually assured destruction, the balance of nuclear terror. The USSR you know, was in its own way a rational actor. It looks so much more dangerous now because it's not cold. This is very hot and we don't know where this is going to go. We don't know what Putin will do. Say his soldiers are held up for two weeks outside the major cities. What will he then do? One must conclude that if he thinks he's going to lose, he will simply escalate the military attacks on civilian or on populations or on the military again. I don't know. But it could get very, very dangerous. More so, I think everything now.
0: you've just said is really key, Mick Cox, because the question of irrational actions now, and especially the other side of it, because we've been talking about how Putin is an international pariah, and there are very effective methods to increase the isolation of Russia. Mm -hmm. And when you back people into a corner, you increase the risk for accidents, incidents, uh, danger. And you're right. It's at a far more dangerous Position than we've ever been before. You know, we also know that they have seized Chernobyl, and I read that the mm. tanks coming in overturned the soil and allowed radioactive dust into the air. There's mm. that. There's all of these different aspects, and I don't know if, if you could ever trust the Daily Mail as as a not source.
1: My, not
2: my favorite newspaper, I have not to by say.
0: any means. But <laughs> they did have video of Chechens brought in who are given a deck of cards with various people to assassinate in Ukraine. And the number one was Zelensky and his Zelensky. family, Zelensky. And so, you know, who knows what's going on? And we I don't think we should, in our discussion here, try to guess about whether assassination is the topic. But I think the other side of it, because you're talking in a much larger role and we don't have all that much time, we should talk about China's role in mm-hmm. all of this mix. And you're the expert on international relations. And <laughs> Maybe I should just let you talk, and I'll interrupt you with your yeah, questions here and there.
2: I think I may have mentioned this last time, so I don't want to bore your listeners with repeating myself, which is a very academic thing to do, I know. I've been arguing for about five years now that I think the relationship between China and Russia, rather, <laughs> slip of the tongue, the relationship is much deeper, I think, than a lot of analysts believe five or six or seven years ago. And I wrote a piece, and I did a chapter, and I'm now writing a book on the same topic, by the way, Polity Press. Mm. It'll be out okay. this year, Anyway, basically, I think that relationship is now really very, very serious and deep indeed. And it's not just about opposing the United States or opposing liberalism. It's not even about both systems maintaining themselves by supporting each other. This domestic politics does make a big difference. They want to support each other in order to maintain their own regimes, even though they're very different kinds of systems. I understand that. But there's also a fundamental similarity on on many, many questions. I've been surprised, and I looked at that new communique that came out on the 4th of February. It's Mm -hmm. a fascinating document. By the way, published while Putin was in Beijing at the Olympics, Winter Olympics, the beginning, which most Western powers and governments were boycotting. (laughs) You know, so Xi Jinping was very, very happy for Putin to come along, but interestingly, they put together this very lengthy communique. And I won't go into all the details of it, but I, I think it's reasonable to say that this was probably the first joint statement they've made of such length and indeed of depth, of trying to propose a, a new kind of world order, parallel to, in many ways, opposed to what has existed since the end of the Cold War. It won't be led by the United States. It will oppose Western interventionism. It talks about democracy but doesn't like the idea of democracy, enlargement, you know, right across the range. You can see it. Now, I'm, I'm not paranoid, and I've always opposed an idea of a new Cold War. I never quite liked that concept, really. But it does look like a a kind of a doctrine being laid out by both. And it was written two or three weeks or so, two and a half, three weeks before the war itself, you know. Now, I don't think there's a necessary connection between that communique and Putin going to war. And, of course, there's then a big question, is how much did China actually know Mm. about, about this? And, again, one can only speculate. Look, certainly... Before the intervention, China was giving a huge amount of diplomatic support to Russia on NATO enlargement on the European security structure and saying that basically you've got to understand Russia's position and America here is the real problem. Now, since then, a number of things have been said, implied, that China may be having not second thoughts about supporting Russia, but might be having second supports about supporting Putin all the way down. Wow. Because this actually creates some problems for China. Firstly, they've got big economic relations with Ukraine. Next point, China supports the principle of Mm non-intervention. And this looks like an intervention to me. I don't know what it looks like to you, Susie, but it looks like an intervention to me. I may not be too clever, you know, but it looks like an intervention. And also, China is fundamentally opposed to any form of secession whether it's Tibet or, you know, Taiwan or anyone. And, you know, what's Russia trying to do create a secession? So I think this has put China in a very, very difficult position. Yet, yet, China still says this is not an invasion. It's already given increased economic support to Russia. If these economic sanctions kick in, which I think they will do in time, Russia, I think, will certainly be willing to open it up. This is what brings me back to your last point, the point you made earlier on. This will therefore make Russia more dependent on China.
0: Well, let me ask you just about that, because are you kind of implying that China has an inside-outside or a public and a a not public face on this, that on the one hand, they certainly must have been, as we say, in the loop and known, maybe not exactly that Russia would do it, but that, you know, the possibility was there. We know that yesterday... I don't even know which day we're out anymore, but Xi Jinping actually released on Twitter a statement saying that he's urging Putin to negotiate. So that maybe that's for Western consumption. Who knows? So I'd, I'd love yes. to hear your further idea on that, because as well, you say, it yeah. goes against all that real politique attitude and non-intervention that we've always known China for.
2: Well, you could face one of two ways on this question. You can either say that, China's getting increasingly embarrassed by this, doesn't want to be associated with a pariah state, and doesn't want to be associated with methods being employed by Putin, which Russia itself opposes internationally, like you know, intervention, secession. And it has called for a peaceful solution. There's no doubt about that. So there's certain little tensions there. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, I come back to the point I've made. You know, before... The intervention, it supported Putin. Going back five years, it has been supporting Russia on a series of issues. By the way, and again, we can only speculate at this moment in time, at least intelligently, I hope. You know, Russia has taken a clear line on supporting China on a series of big issues important for China. And by the way, one of them is clearly Taiwan. Now, I'm Mm. not saying straight away we're going to start seeing military intervention by China over Taiwan. But nonetheless, they don't recognize Taiwan as an independent sovereign state. And ultimately, they see they believe in a one-China policy, which would ultimately see Taiwan join. And Russia has said, we support you on that. So there's all sorts of areas where there's some fundamental overlaps between the interests of the two countries, and more than I can even talk about here today. So I'd have to say that I think the relationship between them is going to survive, because I think it's too important to both of them for all sorts of reasons, domestic and international, yet it might go through a a very stormy period. And and frankly, the worse this war gets and the more pariah-like Russia becomes, I think the more we're going to hear rumours, innuendos, coming out of uh, the Chinese leadership in Beijing.
0: Well, that, I guess, brings us to what the West is doing and can do within this, because presumably, and you're seeing a division in the West too, by the way, Mm. between, you know, those pushing the, what do we call it, the international liberal order. (laughs) And Mm. on the other hand, far more support. For NATO and for the West, as you said, on the level of countries, even like Finland that was outside of NATO, there's an increased support now for joining NATO in some sort of protective stance. But then there's the other side where in politics within the United States, you see the Republicans saying, oh, you know, on the one hand, uh, Biden has to be tougher, more sanctions, more sanctions, but sanctions mm. are a pretty weak card in this instance because Putin is prepared for them. So what do you think about the West's response? And you are the expert on Europe as well, so
2: yeah, well, let's hear it. I've been a bit surprised that as the war has gone on, what's happened, I think, is that a number of people in the Western countries, European countries, particularly Germany maybe, more than any other, I think have kind of come to a realisation rightly or wrongly, but they've come to a realisation that this is a defining moment for the whole European security order and that Putin cannot be allowed to win. I think it's as simple as that now. It's that significant. It's almost like not the beginning of the Cold War back in 1946. So I don't think we're talking about Cold War. But it, it may <laughs> even be more problematic and dangerous than that. I just hmm. don't know. I just felt, The move, the public opinion move, government move, even in countries which were very reluctant at the beginning, like Germany and indeed France and others, Italy too, by the way, for all sorts of economic reasons and other reasons, didn't want this to escalate. And Putin is not giving them any way out, frankly. And I've just seen them toughening up their stance on sanctions. We may move towards much stronger sanctions than was originally wanted and planned for by the European country, by the EU. It's taken a very tough line. We'll have to see what they do in practice. Military support and aid for the Ukrainians themselves is is increasing. How much? I'm, I'm not a military expert, but it looks like it's going up. Stinger missiles may be going in, we're told now. And they were very effective in Afghanistan, by the way, if you remember. And thirdly and finally, you know, the NATO alliance, which was creaking, creaking at the seams, you know, last year after Afghanistan, after the US uh, unilateral decision to get out of Afghanistan in the way in which they did, it was creaking. Now it looks like it's got a bit more life left in it. You listen to the Secretary General of NATO, you listen to the the meetings together. I'm not saying they've welcomed this, they certainly have not welcomed it, but it's given NATO a real mission, a real purpose now. And I think they genuinely believe now that they can't let Putin win this. And I think they're more determined than ever. I was listening to a, a one-hour session yesterday with people from The Economist, kind of middle-of-the-road kind of people, more or less, you know, not madly right-wing, they're certainly not left-wing. But I was struck, really, by the view that this is really so defining in historical terms. And I think we then end up, Susie, so with something that worries me when I think about it. Putin can't lose this war, Mm. But NATO can't allow Putin to win. And therein lies, I think, the very real dangerous situation we now find ourselves in.
0: I mean, there's not a lot left to say there except kind of speculation on what that means, mm. all of which is too horrible to contemplate. And, you know, I guess my immediate reaction is that Putin can't, in his own mind, he can't lose but what can he do when he, he has no public support for what he's doing? And that's a real question, of course. And then on the other hand, the U.S., I mean, you know, and, and the West, if they see this as so catastrophic that they can't lose, yet we can't risk a war. What, are they going also, to send out well, drones no, to try no. to assassinate him? I mean, you know, this no, gets no, really I, crazy. Well,
2: who knows? I, I doubt that. But I all I'm trying to put it in is in a kind of pan-historical way that I've been struck. At the beginning of all this, I thought, well, we'll get through this. There may not be an invasion, you know, like a lot of people, like so-called experts, kind of thought it wouldn't happen. It did happen. I think it's taken us a little bit of time to catch up with the reality. But as we caught up with the reality, watching what governments are doing and saying on both sides of the Atlantic, there's some very tough talk coming out there. It's not as tough as the Ukrainians would like, And there are divisions still within the West Afro. Germany gets a lot of its gas and energy from, from Russia. But interestingly, too, I don't know if you noticed this, where you're sitting, Susie, but one of Putin's big supporters in Europe was Orbán in Hungary. And, you know, a nationalist populist who loved Putin. Watching Orbán now take the position he's taken, you know, going falling in right behind the European Union on sanctions. He's actually pressing... The tough line on the swift issue of a payment system, that's telling you something. That's telling you. Even Turkey, which has been an ambiguous member of NATO for some while, even they now feel, well, we've got very good relations with Putin. We certainly don't want to upset him. We buy a lot of our military from him as well. And Erdogan clearly would like to maintain it. But on the other hand, I I feel him being pushed and, and drawn in in a certain direction. So, getting back to your point, the isolation of Putin is clearly growing, and this must surely have an effect back in Russia itself.
0: Well, we're going to have to end it there. And I know there's so much more to speculate Mm. about. And I think, Mick Cox, I want to thank you for your really intelligent overview Mm. of the situation and pinpointing the salient parts, but also to kind of end it where you came in and said it's a dangerous situation. It's also a weird one. Mm. And we have to all get our heads around it. So I want to invite you back as this unfolds. We'll continue this. But for now, we'll just tell people to keep watching, keep listening. Mm keep thinking (laughs) mick cox thanks so much for joining us today mick is emeritus professor of international relations in london his newest book that will be out very soon agonies of empire u.s power from clinton to biden and also look at his book the post-cold war world mick as always thanks for joining us
2: thanks susie you're doing a great job keep it up thanks again
0: (laughs) okay